This is our last week in our series in the book of First John. And it's hard to believe it's been three months that we've been in this book. And that's where someone would wisecrack and say, it feels like three years. Well, that's too bad. No, but three months, and we've, after today, we'll have gone through the whole book verse by verse, and we've talked about like a bunch of different things, and we have like a lot of things now to do, amen? Like our work's kind of cut out for us after we've read this. It's just all kinds of stuff that we need to do and keep doing. And uh, today is one final shot at this, one final jaunt through this book, one last hurrah. It's like when you watch a fireworks show and they save the big kaboom for the end, that's kind of what we're doing. We're gonna talk about an assortment of different things today, some of which we've already seen in this series, and we're gonna just go for them again, drive them home again, just to make sure we understand them again. And some of the stuff is gonna be new stuff, but in all of what we talk about today, there's a common thread, a common theme that goes through it all, and it's confidence. Somebody say confidence. That's a good word, right? We like, we like the connotations of the word confidence. Confidence is something that we all need. I don't care really, in a respectful way, I don't really care who you are. I don't really care what your life is like. In a sense, it doesn't really matter if you're a Christian or not, you need confidence, okay? This is a universal thing we all need. Confidence is defined this way. It's the feeling or belief that one can rely on something. It's firm trust. You get the impression there, like it's solid. It's not just some wobbly thing. And life is as such that it requires us to lean hard into things and have to be able to trust that they're not gonna bend or break under the pressure. That's just, that is what life requires. So the question as we start today is not, have you put your confidence somewhere? We've all put our confidence somewhere or in something. The question is, where have we put it? In who or what is our confidence today? That's our starting point. And we can go any number of different directions with that one, as we usually do. We can go self-confidence. Right? We can look to ourselves and put the firm trust in ourselves and really lean into ourselves to be able to get through and to get by and to power through today. Sometimes we put our confidence in other people. We really lean hard into other people to help support us and hold us up. Sometimes we put our confidence in the system. Sometimes we probably regrettably put our confidence in the politicians and in politics. That they'll, they'll come along and they'll clean this all up. Sometimes we put our confidence in our savings account or in your resume. And none of those things are inherently immediately bad. But here's the thing. None of them are sufficient either. All of those things I just mentioned, if we lean too hard into them for too long, inevitably they can't stand up under the pressure. They're not meant to. They're not supposed to. And inevitably, when we go for that and we lean into those things too hard, too much, for too long, they bend, they break, they buckle under the pressure, and we're left disappointed. We're left trying to figure out what's going on. We're left picking up pieces. That is not the life that God has for us. God does have a life of confidence for us, but it's in a very specific place. It's actually in a person, and his name is Jesus. 
That is where our confidence ought to be. And I want to just tell you today, when you put your confidence in Jesus, not just like the churchy platitudes, the, oh, you know, just the, the surface level, whatever. When you really trust in Jesus, when you really put your confidence in Jesus, you will find that is the only place ultimately in this life, in this world, where you will never be let down, abandoned. You will never be fully, ultimately disappointed. I don't mean that you'll always get your way, but in, in the big picture, in the really important push comes to shove kind of things, Jesus is faithful. He is, he is present. He never leaves us, never forsakes us. He is for us, and he has good for us. So, so far, is this good news to anybody? Is this landing well for anybody? Jesus is where we put our confidence. Yes. You can clap at any point. I would love that. That's great. That's encouraging for your pastor when you clap. It's better than throwing things or saying nothing. Now, with that in mind, a life of confidence. God has a life for us, and it involves confidence in Jesus Christ. Let's get into uh, God's word. We're in 1 John 5, 13. 1 John 5, 13 through to the end of the book is where we're at today. And it starts out by saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's writing to Christians, you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And when I was preparing for this, I almost didn't even notice, I almost missed the fact that it says, believe in the name of the Son of God. I almost glossed over that. It's kind of interesting. Why not just say you who believe in the Son of God? Why does it have to say you believe in the name of the Son of God? Because the name of Jesus is a powerful name. The name of Jesus is a strong name. There is no name greater uh, that carries more authority, that packs more punch than the name of Jesus Christ. And that is the name in which we are to have confidence. Now, the name Jesus actually means Yahweh saves. It means the Lord is salvation. So his very name, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his very name represents our salvation, our freedom, our deliverance, our hope, our strength, our joy, our peace, our purpose. It's all there in his name, Jesus Christ. And I want to read to you a few verses from Scripture that talk about his name. Philippians 2.9, this is a pretty famous one, says, God has exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That's how big and magnificent and important his name is. You can't get around his name. We will all give an account to him one day. Luke 10.17 Jesus' disciples were talking to him, and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So it's a name that carries authority with it, even authority over the powers of darkness. It's a strong name. Isaiah 9, 6 says, for unto us, it's a Christmas verse, for unto us a child is born, and his name, listen to this language, shall be called Wonderful Counselor. That's Jesus. Mighty God, that's Jesus. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, that's Jesus. That's his name. Is all, it's all right there. John 14, 13, Jesus said, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So God comes along and can move in a powerful way in accord with Jesus' name. It's a strong name. Proverbs 18, 10, one last one. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. 
It actually was by accident that we sang the song that said just that a couple minutes ago. But the name of the Lord is a strong tower. It's a name of safety and of refuge for us. It's a place we can run to. So when we're talking about the name of Jesus, we're not just tossing the old name around. When we toss the name of Jesus around, we are calling on the great, the greatest, most powerful, most glorious, most authoritative name that there is. That's our Jesus. That's his name today. And we are to believe in his name. When we've talked about this, believe does not just mean there's a little bit of a flicker up in here and that's it. Oh yeah, I believe there's a God, sure, but that's it. No, when we talk about believe, it's a firm trust. It's a firm grip in our lives. It's something that, that permeates every part of us. It's something that affects all of our lives. It's, it, belief changes things. Belief causes us to trust him more and to want to walk with him more and to be in relationship with him more. There's a word that can sum all that up, by the way, and it's abiding, abiding, time number 1,000 in this series, abiding. That's been our key word in 1 John. The life that God has for you is a life of abiding in Jesus Christ. That means you get with Jesus, you walk with Jesus, you look to Jesus, you trust in Jesus, you put your confidence in Jesus. Is this making sense so far? Jesus, confidence in his name. So, so the question today is this, do you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? You do. Good. Do you abide with Jesus in your life? How's your relationship? How's your abiding with Jesus going? Because that's the life God has for you. Now, with that said, we're going to see four things through the rest of our text today. When we abide with Jesus, when we put our trust in Jesus, when we believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that brings up confidence in us. And we're going to see, there are many, but we're going to see four today, four channels of this confidence, four ways this confidence is expressed. Number one is confidence for eternal life. This one is going to be a bit of a recap because we've talked about this a couple times in this series. So very quickly, we're still in verse 13. I write these things that you, you believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may be sure that you have eternal life. Now, we've said this before. We're to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. We're to abide in Jesus Christ. That's the life God has for us. And we've, we've explained that that is where eternal life begins. Let me just recap your memory. We said way back in week one, three months or three years ago, whichever it was to you, week one, we said eternal life is not just the passage of time. Like, it does pertain to that, but it's more than that. It's not just a qu uh, quantity of time. It's a quality of life. Eternal life, yes, it does go on forever, but it also is eternal in that it never ends, fades, tarnishes, wears out. It's enduring. It's eternal. So that's good. Eternal life is also not just a reference to the afterlife, the next life. I want you to commit a verse to memory. I want you to never forget John 17, 3. It says, this is Jesus talking. He says, this is eternal life, that they know God, that they know, have a relationship with, abide in God. That is the essence of eternal life. True or false, can we know God in this life? 
Yes, we can. So therefore, yeah, the fullness of our eternal life is yet to be discovered and experienced, but we have it in part now. So we need to walk in light of that. Here's very simply what this is saying. You can have confidence when you abide in Jesus about your eternal life. Because it's very simple. When you abide in Christ, when you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, you don't have to wonder in this life, what's gonna become of me? You don't have to wonder, is there any purpose to my life? Is there any love for me in this life? Is there any reason for me to be here? Where am I going? Why is this world so crazy? What's gonna happen to me? Listen to me. Ultimately, I've heard it said this way and I wanna say it now. If you believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, this is as close to hell as you will ever get. And sometimes it seems like we're pretty close. But I digress. When you abide in Jesus Christ, you know who you belong to and you know what's gonna become of you. And that brings up confidence. Like that, without that, I don't know how people get through this life. But we don't have to worry about that because we can know, we can be sure of it. Is that good news for anybody today? Good. Well, let's move on then. Number two, we can have confidence in prayer. Somebody say prayer. When we, with gusto even, that was good. When we abide in Jesus Christ, believe in his name, a confidence comes up in our prayer lives. So let's read this, verse 14. It says, and this is the confidence, there's the word confidence, that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So this is talking about prayer. Part of our abiding, part of our relationship with Jesus is our prayer, our talking to him, our listening to him, that dialogue. And part of prayer is asking. There it says ask in there. So a couple things about verse 14. Number one, it assumes that we're praying in the first place. It assumes that we are praying in the first place. So do you pray? Do you pray regularly? You don't have to answer this out loud. This doesn't have to be confession time. Do you pray regularly? Do you pray frequently? Do you pray often? Do you pray at all? The world-renowned Bible scholar who we're blessed to have in our church, whose name is Jim Edel, said it this way, and this really ministered to me. Prayer should not be our last resort but our first response. Prayer is not something that we just do when we're all out of options and there's nowhere else to turn and then maybe we'll pray. No, it's in all, in all times, in all things, our first instinct is to run to the Lord with it. By the way, Jimmy, that $5 we talked about, cash, e-transfer, I'm good. I'm good for it. He's, he's not looking at me for some reason. <laughs> ah. So, Okay, so we need to pray. We need to be a people of prayer. The second thing that this comes up with this, it's conditional. It says, if we ask anything, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. God has a will. That very simply means this. God's will is simply what he wants, what he wants done, what he desires. That's his will. And we are familiar with that language. It's in a place like the Lord's Prayer even, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that ought to be our heart. And what that tells me is that prayer is not just about us asking for things. Prayer is partly to help us get onto the program of God's will. 
It's partly to help us understand his will and his heart better. That's part of what prayer is. And, and, and we're not told to pray, my kingdom come, my will be done, but thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so, listen to me. You probably know this, but I'll burst your bubble. I, I don't mind if you don't know this already. You are not going to get everything you ask for in prayer. Just because I prayed it, I get it. Well, that's not how it works. Like, sometimes we pray for the wrong things. Sometimes we pray selfishly. Well, I do. Maybe you don't. Sometimes we pray with the wrong motives. God is not going to honor those. Well, I wasn't going to give that to them, but since they prayed, well, darn it, i got to give it to them. It's bad for them, but oh well, they prayed. That's not how it works at all. Now, here's kind of how it works, though. This is kind of cool. When we abide in Christ when we really get with Jesus and hang out with Jesus and get to where he's at and we start spending time with him, we start to change. Some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. You start to change. All of a sudden, your heart starts to change. Your desires start to change. Your attitude about things starts to change. Let's get real. Your bitterness starts to change. Your unforgiveness starts to change. Your fear starts to change. You can't genuinely get in close to Jesus and not change. That's what happens. And as we're getting close to Jesus, abiding in him, and we're changing, well, we start to change to become more like him. And part of what comes with that is we start to get onto his will more closely. All of a sudden, God's will was going this way and I was going this way, but the closer I get to Jesus, all of a sudden I find the things that I'm praying are changing and they're starting to be more in line with the heart and the character and the will of God. That's what happens. That's how it works. So all of a sudden, we're able to pray according to his will and when we pray according to his will, he hears us. That brings up confidence, friends. God is not some distant figure. He hears us when we pray. And the confidence, by the way, is in him. It's not, oh, he heard me. I must have prayed really well there. I'm so devout. My prayers are so amazing. No, the confidence is in him. He's listening. He hears us. That's good. Now, it continues on. Verse 15, as you see there. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask... We know that we have the requests that we have asked for him, of him. So God not only hears our prayers, but when we pray in accord with his will, he answers those prayers. We know and can be confident in the fact that our needs are going to be met. Our prayers are going to be answered. Provision is going to be made. God hears and he answers. I want you to, in fact, I want you to repeat this after me. God answers prayer. God answers prayer. One more time. This verse does not tell us that it might appear at first, but it doesn't. Oh, whatever I ask, I get. Again, not how it works. But God answers prayer. God answers every prayer. God answers prayer sometimes by saying yes. Sometimes he answers by saying no. Sometimes he answers by saying not right now. I have something better for you or that's to come later. But God always answers prayer, always, always, always. And sometimes we don't see it that way. Sometimes we get discouraged. God, why haven't you answered my prayer? Maybe he has answered your prayer. 
Maybe it's just not the way you were expecting or you were picturing or you were wanting. But God has a will and his will is good for us so we need to be confident in it. The question is not, does God hear my prayers? The question is not, does God answer my prayers? The question is this, will I trust God in the process? Because he is doing a work and we can't always see the full picture. Will we trust him? Will we have our confidence in him? We need to be a people that do that. I'm just telling you. We need to be a people of prayer. If we miss out on that one, like we're missing out on a big thing in a big way. And, and, and not only are we, I mean, there's a number of things we'd be missing out on. One of them is confidence. The more we pray, the more we get onto the will of God and the heart of God, the more confidence we have when we pray. That's what that's saying. You want confidence in your prayer life today? One of you does? Did you want confidence in your prayer life today? Yes, then let's do this. Let's trust in him and let's be a people of prayer. Does that sound good? All right. Now, the third channel of confidence is this, confidence regarding sin. Somebody says, I don't like the sound of this one that much. This is one of the most notoriously difficult passages in 1 John to understand. Maybe even in the New Testament. This one's just up there. It's difficult. And there are many different viewpoints and interpretations and ideas and opinions on this. But I want us to go through this because God actually does have a good word for us about our sin as Christians. So, verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death... You say, what in the world is that talking about? A sin that doesn't lead to death. I thought all sin led to death. Like, what about something like Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is death. Yeah, it absolutely says that. That's absolutely true. And you can see in verse 17 right there, it says all wrongdoing is sin. All sin is bad. All sin separates us from God. All sin puts us in the path of the wrath of God. That's why we need to be saved by Jesus. Amen? Because sin is not good. Now, if we're going to understand that first line in a bit up there, sin not leading to death, we need to have a little bit of context. And I don't want you to tune me out when I start talking about context, because it's important. When we talk about context, we're talking about getting all the information, all the details, all the background that we can before we rush to a conclusion about something. Well, that's what we have to do here. Let me give you a helpful piece of context for that verse. I'll remind you, it's being written to Christians. Makes a big difference. This is being written to Christians because it says, if anyone sees his brother, that's language of they're a Christian, you're a Christian. Good? So if anyone sees his brother committing a sin that does not lead to death, it says, he shall ask. He shall ask. That means we'll pray. We'll pray for them. How many of you know that as Christians, as believers, we still sin? Okay, most of you, most of you still sin. We're gonna hang out with the rest of you guys and learn a thing or two. Yes, we still sin as Christians. We still stumble, we still slip up. Answer me this, does God immediately disqualify us and kick us out when we sin and stumble as Christians? No, he does not. That was good. 
That was a good one. No, he does not. It's not a case of I sin once, twice, thrice, whatever comes after thrice, four ice. That's probably not it. Anyway, it's not a matter of we get written out of the will and we're done if we sin that way. So in that sense, those kind of sins as a Christian do not lead to death. Because God has grace for us. God knows we all stumble in many ways. That's what it says in the book of James. We all stumble. And, and, and we couldn't have any confidence in this life if it was a matter of you sin once and you're done. You're out. So, in that sense, our sin as Christians does not lead to death. Again, where I was going earlier, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. That's prayer. You pray for them. When you see another believer, I know you would never do this. This is a hypothetical thing. But if you were to ever sin and stumble, part of our responsibility as brothers and sisters is that we pray for each other. Notice that the first instinct is not roll your eyes at them. Notice the first instinct is not get on your high horse about them. You pray for them. Pray for them. And when we do, it says God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. In other words, when we pray for another Christian, when they stumble, not if, but when they stumble, when we pray for them, God does a work. God does a redemptive, restorative work and gives them life. It's good. God does something there. Now, something interesting about this the action to be taken there, the job to be done there in this occasion is not even by the person that did the sin. Do you notice that? Now, we are all accountable. We are all responsible for our own sin. You can't say, it wasn't my fault. I'm a victim. I'm this, I'm that. No, if you sin, like you're accountable for that. You're responsible for that. It's not somebody else's thing. But this is telling us we need to be looking outward at other people, not just inward, focused on ourselves. You have a responsibility as a Christian. I have a responsibility as a Christian to pray for other Christians when they sin. Do we do that? It was a little bit of a new one for me. Like, sometimes I do, but this is saying, like, when you see it, it could just be a little slip up. Pray for them. You say, oh, I don't want to be judgy. I get that. But why are we necessarily equating praying for them with judging? Why is that the same thing? This doesn't say you get around the water cooler and gossip about them. It says you pray for them. You go to the Lord on their behalf and you pray. It's not a big public display. Other people don't have to know about it. You pray. You know what that is? That's an example of loving somebody else. Yet again, you knew it was going to come up in this sermon somewhere. It's First John. It has to. Loving one another as Christians. So important. This is yet another way that we express that. Now, the heat kind of turns up a little bit at that point. It says there is sin that leads to death. So we've established there's sin that doesn't lead to death. That's when Christians, believers in Jesus, sin and stumble and we pray for them. All that doesn't lead to death. But there is sin that leads to death. So there are some circles in the, the church world 
where you hear talk about the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. And people speculate it's maybe it's this particular sin or it's this one or that one. Maybe it's this particular sin. I would just submit to you, again, there's lots of different viewpoints on this one. That isn't necessarily the most helpful way of thinking of this verse, of viewing this verse. How many of you know about the game Minesweeper? Most of you. Okay, how many of you still have Minesweeper? Strikingly less. Okay, so you can still get it somewhere, right, I assume, okay? It's kind of a fun game. You know the game. You get your board, and you click on the tiles, and hopefully numbers will pop up, and it's telling you, like, how far away from a bomb you are. But if you click on that particular tile or this one where there's a mine underneath it, and a mine and you can't see it, and you click it, it the mine reveals you blow up and you're done and the game's over. I mean, instantaneously, you're done. That's not really what this is talking about. It's not a matter of we can accidentally click on that sin. We can accidentally stumble into that one sin. You can do all these other sins and you're fine, but this one particular sin and you're done, not really what it's saying. Here's what I would pose to you. Again, lots of different viewpoints, but a lot of scholars agree, and I personally would agree with them, that the sin that leads to death is a continual rejection of Jesus Christ. And I'll explain that. It's a willful, ongoing, lifelong, ultimate, final rejection. And that makes sense off the hop because we know that if someone never gives their life to Jesus, if someone never comes to him and is saved by him, that does lead to death, right? That's, that's what the result is. There's a verse in Matthew chapter 12, it's verse 31, Jesus is talking and he says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, every sin. So whatever sin you commit, whatever landmine you step on, like it can be forgiven. God has grace for us in that if we seek it and ask him in that. But it says, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So some people read that verse and they go, oh, there's the unforgivable sin. You say a bad word against the Holy Spirit. Again, not necessarily what you see at face value. Stay with me now, this is important. This is, this, is, this is important. We've talked even in this series about the role of the Holy Spirit, right? Ring a bell. We have said that the role of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Jesus. In all that the Holy Spirit does, he does a lot of stuff, very busy at work, but in all of it, he points us, directs us, pleads with us toward Jesus. John 15, 26, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will bear witness about me. That's what he said. And so when a person continually rejects and resists the work of the Spirit, which is to point them to Jesus, that is, in a sense, blaspheming the Spirit because you're saying, I don't need that. That's not for me. That's not my truth. That's not my path. That's wrong. That's outdated. Eh. That's rejecting and resisting and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, as life goes on, again, the person that's in that state and, and continues and ends up in that state, death is the result, right? We've established that already. So again, I would submit it's not the one time, oops, I stumbled into that one particular sin. I went into that, you know, briar patch that I shouldn't. Uh, it's, it's the ongoing, continual, progressive process of rejecting the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the word that we get out of this. This also seems interesting. It says, 
I do not say that one should pray for that. Again, kind of seems a little different, right? It looks like he's saying, don't bother praying for lost people. That isn't what he's saying, I'll just tell you. There's still room in that. He's not forbidding us to pray for them. What he's saying is we can still pray for lost people who don't know Jesus, but the burden of responsibility is a little bit different than up here at the top when you see a brother committing a sin not leading to death. So let me explain. Take a deep breath. You doing okay? Deep breath. Come on, we're, we got this. We got this. Okay, so when it's a sin not leading to death up at the top, we as Christians have a clear, immediate responsibility to pray for one another. Absolutely we do. The responsibility is a bit different with the sin that leads to death. Ultimately, you know what? Let's just talk straight up about this. We all know people who aren't saved. We all care about people who aren't saved. We all have relationships with and love people who aren't saved. So let's not trifle around with this, okay? Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for their salvation. Pray that the Lord will reach in and stir in their heart and the light bulb will come on and they will get it. Pray for them. It's important. But if it doesn't happen, let's just talk straight here. If it doesn't happen, at the end of the day, they never do accept Christ. We don't have to walk in guilt in it. That's what that's telling us. This is, we're talking about confidence, right? It's not necessarily, Braden, you idiot, you didn't pray hard enough for that person. It's your fault that guilt is on your head. Now, listen, let it never, ever, ever, ever be said of us, church, that we did not give a rip enough about lost people to pray for them. Let it never be said of us. Let it never be said of me or of you. You, We never prayed, never cared, never shared the gospel, never planted seeds, never witnessed, never set a good example, never represented Christ, just didn't care. Let that not ever be said by God to us. Seriously. We, though, as we go through this life and we take our witnessing seriously and we're praying for people and we're sharing the gospel and we're witnessing and we're testifying and we're setting a good example and we're pointing them to Jesus and we're praying and praying and praying, ultimately, like, you can't control if someone gets saved or not. That's a work that God does in there. You can't force them through the door of salvation. That's a work that the Lord does in them. And at the end of the day, if it still doesn't happen, It was ultimately their decision. Let it be said of us that we did absolutely the most that we could do, and we prayed the absolute most we could pray. And if salvation still doesn't happen, again, we don't have to bear that burden. Like it's as though we didn't do something. That's kind of a hard word, I know, but there is a word of confidence in there for us. And I'm saying if we all do our job and we all take our job seriously, We'll do everything we can do to see as many people get saved as can get saved. Is that what you want? That's what I want. Yeah. 
So, okay, let's keep moving then. Verse 17, it says, all wrongdoing is sin, but again, there is sin that does not lead to death. So we've talked about that. We don't want sin. We don't want to just coddle ourselves in our sin. We want to move past sin because it all, it, all sin detracts from our experience of Christ. The more we move past sin in our lives, the more we experience the life that God has for us. It says in verse 18, we know that everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. We've talked about that one as well in this series. A mark of a true Christian is not that you never sin or stumble, because we do, but it's that you don't have to get stuck in that rut. You don't have to be caught in that rut of I'm sinning continually, ongoing, I can't get out of it, I can't escape it. Listen to me, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the grace of God. You have the love of our Savior and His presence in you. So we have everything we need. If we will trust him, we have everything we need to stop sinning. We also have other brothers and sisters who can help us be accountable in that. We have everything we need. You can stop sinning. You can. This continual ongoing sin. It says, we know everyone born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Some people say that he who was born of God is talking about Jesus. Some people say it's other Christians protecting other Christians in their prayers. Either way, though, the point is true. The evil one cannot touch us. The evil one cannot touch us. The evil one will throw his darts. Satan will plant his traps, and he'll try to trip us up, and sometimes he gets us to stumble a little bit here and there. Satan, though, if you are a Christian, he cannot take you down. He cannot overcome you. We said last week, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. It overcomes the world. It overcomes Satan and all of his plans, all of his schemes, all the evil that he would devise for your life. He cannot touch us when we're in Christ. Now, it says in verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Again, you see the black and white thing there. We're really revisiting a lot of stuff that we've seen in this book, just saying. Anyway, the world is in the clutches, in the grip of Satan. The world is crazy. It's a crazy place. The world, sin runs rampant. People can't stop sinning. They don't want to stop sinning. They don't know that they even should stop sinning. They don't even think that they are sinning. They're in the grip of the evil one. Again, pray, pray for them. Pray that they don't have to keep on in that hamster wheel, not living the life that God has for them. But it says that we Christians are from God. We've been born of God. We have been born again in Jesus Christ. And that means we have the Holy Spirit. We have the grace of God. There's something different about us as Christians. In all this, let me sum that up. Confidence. Remember, we didn't forget about confidence. We can have confidence in matters of sin as Christians because God has grace for us when we stumble. Is that good news for anybody? God has grace for us when we stumble. We can have confidence regarding sin because we know as believers we can never commit the sin that leads to death because it's all about walking away from Jesus. When you abide in Jesus Christ and you walk with him, that ain't gonna happen for you. You don't have to worry. You can live in confidence in that. And you can live in confidence because sin cannot ultimately destroy you because we are protected in Christ. Does that sound like something that will bring up confidence in us as a people? 
Let's wrap this up then. We have one last channel of confidence to look at. Number four is confidence in the one true God. There's one true God, friends. There's one true God. His name is Jesus. Verse 20 says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So if you know Jesus, the Son of God, you understand the big idea. You understand the big truth. You understand who God is. That's good news. We've given us, he's given us understanding so that we may know him. It's all about knowing him, abiding in him, relationship with him, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, that's relational language. That's abiding. That's walking. That's a life. Abiding is the life that God has for us. He, Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. Remember, eternal life is all about knowing God and being in God. Notice the word true is in that one verse three times. Not even a long verse. Three times that word true is in there. You know what that means? There is ultimately no, no truth more powerful, more life-changing, more dynamic, more eternity-altering than the truth of who Jesus is. Because he is the one true God. He is the pathway to life. He is the essence of life itself. He is the only source. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is our source of joy. He is our hope. He is our peace. He is our strength. He is our savior. He is our rock and our fortress. He is our, uh, our king. He is our confidence. Where's your confidence today? Yes, good answer, brother. When you know Jesus, when you abide in Jesus, the one true God, that brings up confidence because you know the truth. You know and understand the life that he has for you and you can live it. When we get to verse 21, the very last verse in our whole book, it says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. I've read the book of 1 John before and Every time, till recently, I get to that verse, 21, and I say, that seems so random. What does that have to do with anything? It's like he's writing a letter. You know how it is, you write a letter. Oh, I forgot something. P.S. at the end. P.S. Don't forget to pack clean socks, right? Okay, that's what that feels like to me. But the more I got into this and thought about it, was praying over this, that isn't random at all, actually. It's actually a beautiful, I, I actually don't know if he could have said anything to cap off this book any better than that verse. It's so fitting. Keep yourselves from idols. Very quickly, here's what an idol is. It's anything that you put in the place of God. It's anything that you put before God. It's anything that your wallet and your calendar and your priorities revolve around before the Lord. It's anything that we ultimately worship instead of God, ahead of God. And an idol can be anything. I heard money over here. Money's a huge idol for people, but it can be many more. There's power is an idol. Sex can be an idol. That literally, I was waiting for your heads to pop up and it worked. Praise the Lord. Okay, 
Sex can be an idol. Substances can be an idol. Your own comfort and convenience can be an idol. Your relationships can be an idol. Your feelings can be an idol. Idols are often good things from God that we misappropriate and misapply and put in the wrong place ahead of God. And it's tragic. We allow things to take the place of God. We allow them to come before God. And instead of our confidence being in him, we start to run to those things first. We start to look to those things, hope in those things, trust in those things, long for better days in those things, put our confidence in those things, make sacrifices for those things. This is telling us don't make that mistake. We've gone through this whole book and we have seen that God has a life for us. And it's a life of abiding in Jesus Christ. It's a life of walking with Jesus Christ. It's a life of putting Jesus first, putting Jesus at the center and letting all the other activities of our life revolve around him. That is the life. But we're so easily led astray. We so easily, we get, we get it here. Yeah, God, life for me. Yeah, yeah, abiding, Jesus, great. But then in practice, it doesn't sink into our hearts. It doesn't, it doesn't translate to the work of our hands. We all wrestle with idols, people. Don't care who you are. Don't care what your idol is. If it's not Jesus, you're settling for a lesser life than what he has for you. It's tragic. Don't make that mistake. Don't let something else take the place of Jesus in your life.